1: Good morning, good morning. Welcome to those of you in the room, those of you online. Hello, hello. This is our fourth week in our six week teaching series called Holy Sexuality. And today we're just going to jump kind of right in because we have a lot of ground to cover. Here's why I think today is going to be important for us Um, I think we are naturally ruled by our tendencies, and they're often unconscious. Here's what I mean. Whenever you start talking about sexuality, specifically about same-sex sexuality, some of us might go, look, like, look, whatever you want to do is okay. Like, let's just like be loving and I just don't want to offend you. We'll call this, for our purposes this morning, we'll call this the grace tendency. Okay? And then there's others who, when we talk about sexuality, have the opposite extreme, and we go, gosh, like I'm really worried, like this sounds like a slippery slope thing, we clam up and we go not in my church, and for our purposes this morning we'll call this the truth tendency. I talked to somebody even this last week where they go, gosh, you know, we're doing this series in our church, like what's this mean? Like what are we really saying? It's this this side of things. So I have good news for you, North Canton Chapel. The good news is you don't have to choose between grace and truth. You have to do both. Neither extreme adequately represents Jesus. He came in both grace and truth, and then he calls us to the same posture. This isn't compromise. It isn't a fuzzy middle ground. It's actual, biblical, substantial, real ethic of sexuality, and that's today. We're going to take a hard look at what God's Word says, specifically about homosexuality. And then we're going to take all that, which is going to be a lot of time, I'm just letting you know, take all that and we're going to answer the question, can someone be gay and be a Christian? One personal burden before we step on the gas this morning, um, I care very deeply about the future of the church. I care very deeply about the future of this church too. And I think you're probably in the same boat with me, so hear me. A post-nominal Christian world will not tolerate unequipped Christians. And I would be irresponsible and I would be negligent as a pastor if I didn't equip us in this as a body. So here's where we're going today. There's seven biblical texts that deal directly with homosexuality. And we're going to take a close look at each of them. And I hope will come out the other end, committed to this very hard but gentle, difficult but beautiful ethic of grace and truth. So another necessary word of clarity this morning. I'm starting with an assumption. Okay, So I'm assuming this morning that you are saying something like, I am okay with the Bible as my authority. That's an assumption. And you may not be there but you may be saying something like, I want to find out what this says because I want to live like what this says. And that may not be everybody here, and that may not be everybody listening, and that's okay for now. But I've become convicted and convinced that I am not very good at creating a flourishing life for Brandon Marshall. I'm just not very good. I've tried on my own. My rules are not very good. I've tried and I've failed, and I've become convinced that this does a much better job of pointing me toward truth, this is better at leading me than I am at leading me. And so I've willingly, reluctantly, sometimes, (laughs) put myself under this and said, okay, Lord, you can drive my life. Because I want to know you, I want to know this. And I don't think that'll surprise you because I'm a pastor, like the Bible's kind of my thing. (laughs) But you may not be there this morning. And for right now, that's okay. Um, If the jury is still out for you on that where you're going like, look, a lot of pretty terrible things have been done in the name of this book and I'm not sure I want to align myself with it much less put myself under it, I get you and you're right because the Bible has been terribly mishandled by people to promote some pretty terrible things. And so if coming in this morning you've got your eyebrow raised, please hear me for a second. When those terrible things have been done, And I have in mind things like slavery and oppression and abuse and other terrible dehumanizing things. Those things have often been done by those who have tried to fit Jesus to their already existing agenda rather than fit their agenda to fit Jesus. And you probably already know this, but if I'm looking for a Bible verse to justify an already existing agenda, I'm probably going to find something that at least on the surface seems to fit the bill. right? If you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But if we have the courage to use this rightly, and that's the key, we get a clear picture of who God is. And so if you're with us this morning and the jury is still out for you on the value of God's word, please don't feel like I'm ignoring your concerns. Um, This is just kind of defining the rules of engagement a little bit, okay? Okay. So I want to start off this morning by sharing a quote from a book called, Provocatively, Is God Anti-Gay? by Sam Alberry. And here's what he says. It's a surprise to many people to discover that there are only a handful of passages in the Bible that directly mention homosexuality. There are seven. It's just not an issue that comes up that much. Where it does, however, the Bible has important and clear things to say about homosexuality, and then, as if sensing my inner, well, why is that? Tell me more. He says this, at the very least, this does show us that the Bible is not fixated on homosexuality. It is not what the Bible is about. Our understanding of what the Bible does say on the subject, therefore, needs to be read in the light of the bigger themes of Scripture. What the Bible says about homosexuality does not represent everything God wants to say to homosexual people. It's not the whole message of Christianity. The passages that do need to be looked at as part of the wider message of the gospel, the announcement of what God has done for us in Christ and the need for repentance and faith. I guess one final word before we move in this morning. Um, and I say this to those of you that would skew to this extreme. that are like, all right, gimme. <laughs> Please do not use this morning as an opportunity to sharpen your weapons. If you're here looking for ammo, just some scriptural support to justify someone that you hate, you are in the wrong building. That intention is wrong. It is not the heart of the Lord. And you should take a moment before we go any further to check your heart. This morning is about equipping us to know what God's word actually says about homosexuality. This is an invitation to build muscle in an area where I honestly don't feel that many Christians are very strong. So you with me? Okay, so what are these seven texts? Two scenes from the Old Testament, two laws from the Old Testament, and then three passages from the New Testament. Here we go. First one, Genesis 19. We're actually going to bundle these first two scenes together, Genesis 19 and Judges 19, because they're very similar. Genesis 19 tells the story of God's destruction of an ancient city called Sodom. And it's been used by many Christians as a proof text to demonstrate that homosexuality is unequivocally wrong, but holding Genesis 19 up as an example of gay people is neither helpful nor biblical. It's actually pretty hurtful. Why? Sit tight. Genesis 19 is the first time we see any same-sex sexual activity in the gospel or in, in the Bible at all. Alright, so here's the scene: Genesis 19, verse 1. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot, that's a guy's name, was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, and so they turned aside to him and entered his house And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Okay, so nothing too strange going on yet. I mean, two angels visiting Lot, that's a little odd. Here's where the story continues. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men of the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Interesting, even at that point, like to know them, you're getting the inclination. This doesn't mean like we want to have a conversation. He wouldn't have used the word wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Wow, Lot. They said, stand back. And they said, this fellow, meaning Lot, came to sojourn. He's going to be our judge? Now we're going to deal worse with you than we would with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot, drew near to break the door down. Whoa. So the men of the city want to know Lot's out-of-town guests. And then father of the year, candidate Lot, refuses... And in verse 8 offers his daughters who haven't known any man. The Hebrew word for to know is yada and it almost always refers to sexual intercourse. The word made its first appearance way back in Genesis 4:1 where Adam knew his wife Eve and then baby I'm pretty sure we're all good with how that works. Okay? Lot knows what the mob wants. And so he tries to get out of it by despicably and disgustingly offering his virgin daughters. And still the mob pushes back, no, we want them. So what happens? Fast forward to verse 15. Verse 15 says this. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot and said, "Up, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept up in the punishment of this city. But he, that is Lot, lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful mm, to him, and brought him out and set him outside the city. So in light of last night's events, God's wrath is provoked. Slide on down to verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. That's outside of Sodom. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord from heaven. And he overthrew those cities And all the valley, and the inhabitants of those cities, and what grew on the ground. Total annihilation. Here's the question What provoked God's wrath to the point where He levels an entire city? Here's why that's important. I remember talking with a friend once who was absolutely convinced that Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment on New Orleans because of, quote, all the gays. And I know Christians who look at this passage, and they go, see what happens when you let gay people in? Slippery slope, guys. Is he right? What's in view here? Four quick observations to help us understand what we're looking at. Observation number one. First, this is gang rape, Genesis 19. A common practice in the ancient world as a way for a man, or in this case, a group of men to show their dominance over another person. This is prison rape today. Second observation, there's nothing consensual going on here. Yes, there's same-sex sexual activity in view, 100%, but this is sexual activity characterized by violence. Third, if you're going to make the case that Sodom and Gomorrah are wiped out because of gay sex, no one actually has sex in the entire narrative. You get that? Nothing actually happens other than like this incredibly tense assault. God didn't wipe out Sodom because of sexual activity, because when it came down to it, there was none. Fourth, and most striking, when other biblical passages look back on Genesis 19, as Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the New Testament book of Jude all do, they don't specifically name the sin of Sodom as homosexuality. Ezekiel 19.49. Names the sin of Sodom. Here's what it says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Okay. So when it came time for God to put a label on the sin of Sodom and justify his total annihilation of the city, the label says arrogance did not expect that one now here's the real question keep tracking with me does this scene on its own show that same-sex sexual activity is wrong does this scene on its own show that no don't leave me hang don't go anywhere I feel it. Genesis 19 is clearly talking about same-sex sexual behavior, but I don't know one person, I don't know one gay person who reads Genesis 19 and goes, yep, that's what I want. Preston Sprinkle, who's the center, president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, makes this humanizing and very helpful comment. The type of same-sex sexual behavior pursued by the Sodomites in Genesis 19 does not reflect the attractions and experiences of the average gay person in the world today. And it's pastorally destructive to imply that it does. Whenever Christians haphazardly correlate Sodom with homosexuality, they dehumanize gay people with inaccurate accusations. Here's the point. If you are looking to prove that same-sex sexual activity is against God's design, which it is, and we'll get to that. We've already said that for the last three weeks. If you're looking to prove that, Genesis 19 is not the text to do it. Good interpretive principle for those of you who want to take the Bible seriously. Using a wrong text to justify a right belief is an abuse of Scripture. Using a wrong text to justify a right belief is an abuse of Scripture. And more, it's more than bad Bible study. It's being a bad human. So what can we say from Genesis 19 before we move on? A few things. First, we can definitely say that humanity is prone to broken sexuality. This is sick. Genesis 19 is disgusting. Beyond that, we can say that God takes sins seriously. It's worthy of his judgment. And if we only had Genesis 19, if this was the only text in all of Scripture that talked about homosexuality, here's the only thing that we can say at this point, that violent group gay sex is wrong. That's all we can say at this point. That's Genesis 19. But let's keep going. Judges 19 is very similar. You can read both of those texts. You're going to find very similar scenarios. Let's keep going. Now for these two laws in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18, 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 13. First, before we read them, what is a Leviticus? (laughs) Leviticus. Leviticus is the explosion, the unfolding of God's law for God's people. This is everything from, like, what to eat, what to wear, how to water your lawn. This is, like, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the entire IRS tax code all rolled up into one. Leviticus is a complex, very beautiful document, and it addresses homosexuality in two places. Leviticus 18, 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 13. First, eighteen twenty-two. here's what it says. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Okay, slide on down to 20, 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Again, Preston Sprinkle helps us approach these two twin texts. Here's what he says. As we read these verses, we're faced with two questions. First, do these verses prohibit all forms of homosexual acts or just certain exploitative forms like rape, prostitution, etc.? Like, is there more here than just than there was in Genesis 19? That's a very important question. That is, do these prohibitions apply to consensual, monogamous, loving gay couples? That is an important question. Second question, do these verses still carry authority for Christians today? Okay, that's the lay of the land. Let's get to it. Question number one, what's being prohibited here? What are we really talking about? Another great interpretive principle for you. When reading the Bible, the natural reading is usually the right meaning. Usually. The natural reading is usually the right reading. Because when, when God is trying to communicate through his word, it's not in his character to hide. He wants to be known. And so he's trying to speak and write very clearly. So with that in mind, let's slow down and look at it again. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Now, Not to get to fifth grade sex ed here, but we have to for a moment. Now, why would a man want to lie down with a woman? What usually happens when a man lies down with a woman? What is in a man's mind when he... You're not smiling or looking at me at all. We're all, like, trying to avoid this topic. we got to go here. It's in the Bible, guys. Now, if you're imagining anything other than consensual sex, I think you're shoehorning something into this text that's not actually there. This is talking about any kind of sexual relationship between two men. That's what's being prohibited in Leviticus. Now, how do we know that? Both of these texts use general language to describe intercourse. There's no qualifier here. There's no mention of rape, group sex, coercion, anything. All we get is, don't lie with a man as you would with a woman. And because of the general language, the most natural reading is to see these as prohibiting even consensual same-sex sexual activity. And so we've moved from Genesis 19, which is no violent gay group sex, to now no same-sex sexual activity at all, according to Leviticus. But that's half the picture. That's question number one, because question number two is still lingering out there, isn't it? Are these verses even authoritative for us today? Does this even matter? Because a common pushback about this dusty, rarely visited corner of the Old Testament, I'm willing to bet you did not read Leviticus in your quiet time this morning. Maybe you did. Common pushback goes like this from affirming scholar John Shore. Here's what he says. Christians do not follow the dictates of the Old Testament. If they did, polygamy would be legal, and forbidden would be things like tattoos, wearing mixed fabrics, eating pork, and seeding lawns with a variety of grasses. And the Christian day of worship would be Saturday, not Sunday. And I'm going, dang, because I really love my Swenson's bacon cheeseburger. And I'm pretty sure that this sport coat is like a poly-cotton blend. And I never thought about what kind of grass I put on my yard. Am I disobeying God? Like, am I incurring his righteous wrath because I don't follow the Levitical law code? And I don't mean to sound insulting, but I'm willing to bet that most of us don't have the theological muscle needed to provide an adequate answer for something like that. But you understand we have to, right? Because right now you're looking at two options, guys. Either keep the entire Levitical law code... Good luck. Or reject anything that comes before Matthew as irrelevant. And go, well, you know, David slew a giant and that's awesome, but I don't even know what anything before Matthew has to do with my faith today. Which one are you going with, guys? How would you answer that? Does Leviticus matter? There's much more that we can say to this, but here's the quick answer for the curious. As a document, we have to understand what Leviticus is it is an ancient document, and as a document, it is divided up into two parts. Chapters 1 through 16 explain how to be right with God through ceremony and worship. This is vertical stuff. Chapters 17 through 27 explain what our human relationships should look like, horizontal stuff. And you can read a pun in there if you want to. Chapters 1 through 16 are fulfilled in Jesus. This is the new covenant. We've been made right because of the cross, ceremony and worship. We can come right into God's presence because of what Jesus had done. We don't have to offer a sacrificial lamb once a year like Leviticus 14 says. Why? Jesus. Men, hugging your wife on her period doesn't make you unclean like Leviticus 15 says. Why? Jesus. Leviticus 4.3, If anyone unintentionally sins, he shall offer a bull from his herd. Great news, North Canton Chapel. When you accidentally sin, you don't have to bring a cow and a butcher knife to church anymore. Why? Jesus. Anybody thankful for Jesus? I am. That's the how to be right with God vertical stuff. But here's the thing. Much of Leviticus chapters 19 or 17 through 27, the horizontal stuff, still surfaces and finds even greater focus in the New Testament. In short, ceremony laws aren't ours to fulfill. Those obligations and requirements have been swallowed up in the blood of the new covenant in Christ. Moral laws are there for our guidance, especially when they're reiterated in the New Testament, which, as we'll see, is the case with these two. So before we go to the New Testament, quick summary. Two stories, Genesis 19, Judges 19, show us that violent sex and arrogance, by the way, are sins worthy of judgment. To laws, Leviticus shows us that any same-sex sexual activity is also outside of God's design. And then the fuller reason comes into focus when we turn the page into the New Testament. Romans chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there, flip there, scroll there. We're going to be in Romans 1 for a little while. Romans 1 is probably the most important passage in the Bible when it comes to understanding same-sex sexual relationships. Interestingly also, Romans 1 is also the only place out of these seven texts where female same-sex sexuality is explicitly brought up. So a little bit of context. Romans Romans is Paul's magnum opus. This is his great work. This is the gospel in all its stunning beauty and its sin cast into sharp relief. The good news that Jesus saves sinners rings clear as a bell in Romans. So how does Paul start out Romans? After a few introductory remarks, Paul talks about the world that he sees. Here's what he says, Romans 1:18. He looks around at his world. Here's his conclusion. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. It's this visual image of like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. Like it wants to come up, but there's something in me that's pushing it down, keeping it down. What is that? He keeps pushing a little bit further. 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. What in the world is he talking about? What he's saying here is that you can look around and discern the reality of God. Every person ever, anywhere, no matter who they are, has a faint inkling the soft whisper that God exists. You can look at a thunderstorm and you see his power. You see his beauty in the tuft of a dandelion floating on the breeze. You go, How'd that happen? The problem is, our unrighteousness keeps us from following that whisper and bending our ear to what he might be saying. Then Paul describes, first generally, then specifically, how our unrighteousness reveals itself. He says in verse 21, for although they knew God, meaning like, yeah, we, we, we heard you're out there, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things basically my unrighteousness causes me to reject god thanks for making me no thanks for telling me how to live my life or as someone once quipped god made us in his own image and ever since then we've been trying to return the favor and the result is perpetual functional idolatry You heard last week, Laurie and Matt Krieg talked about this hole in everyone's heart. We try and fill it with anything and everything except God. And then Paul gets specific in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to lusts in their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. He narrows further. For this reason, God gave them up, second time he said that, to dishonorable passions. Well, what do those look like? For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, we're going to come back to this because this is the key text. But before we do, Here comes the avalanche of wrath in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. That's the third time he said that. To a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. And now here's how he describes that. The fill of all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What a wonderful picture of humanity. (laughs) Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who do them. You're all going to hell. That's Romans 1. Gay, straight, doesn't matter. Everyone is damned without Christ. Clearly Paul never read how to win friends and influence people. Like this is not how you start off a letter, Paul. And I don't say that to sound flippant. I say it as a corrective. Paul did not write Romans 1 as a condemnation of gay people. He wrote Romans 1 as a condemnation of all people. Preston Sprinkle, again, from his super helpful book, A People to Be Loved, here's what he says. There is absolutely no room for moral pride here. It's an offense both to Paul and the cross of Christ to look down your spiritual nose at the homosexual acts of Romans 1 and ignore your own greed, slander, envy, covetousness, and judgmentalism, which are also mentioned in Romans 1. You're not righteous. That's every one of us. I can go back to verse 29 for a second. Just just listen. (laughs) Listen. Evil, covetous, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters, and I'm done, like I'm out. I just ticked off five and it's not even like 10 o'clock yet this morning. But let's go back to verse 26 because that's the question. What do we see here in verse 26? Four principles arising right from the text. First, my natural desires are informed by the fall. You've got to get that. In verses 26 through 27, the crucial text, Paul uses the word natural twice. Did you catch it? Go ahead and look. If you've got a hard copy of God's word, it's right there. You should underline it. He isn't describing what feels natural from my perspective. He's describing what is natural according to God's design. Sam Alberry succinctly and helpfully offers this one. Here's what he says. Sam Alberry says in Romans 1... Paul's point is that our nature, as we experience it, is not natural as God intended it. That is a huge point. All of us have desires as a result of our fallen nature. Observation number two. God's design for me is better than my design for me. Put another way, me wanting things, (laughs) sounds like a caveman, Me wanting things that God has forbidden is not a reflection of the way things should be. It's the reflection of the way things are post-fall. After Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve went in the garden and loved the apple more than God's sufficiency, I cannot say, because I want this, it must be good. I have to back up and ask, even if this feels right, is it? And for that, I need to fall back on God's design, week one. Observation number three judgment comes in unexpected ways. Three times, Paul uses that phrase, gave them up. Did you catch it? God gave them up. What does that mean? Sometimes God shows his wrath when he gives us exactly what we want. Didn't that stink? When we insist on our own way long enough, God goes, okay, fine. Have it your way. Judgment comes whenever I refuse to make God the center and circumference of my entire existence. When I put myself in the middle of my life rather than God. Fourth observation, and this is the toughest one. In this text... God does not distinguish between abusive same-sex relationships and faithful same-sex relationships. And this is the hard one. Because the pushback comes, whoa, 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 whoa. You've talked about all this other stuff. What if it's a monogamous, loving, non-abusive couple? And again, Sam Alberry helps us with this really succinct quote. Faithfulness demonstrated in an otherwise prohibited relationship does not make it any less sinful. That is really hard. And I don't say that lightly because it's a really hard line that God's word draws. Here's the crux, as clear and as hard as I can see it. If I want for me what God wants for me, I can't say yes where he has said no. And that is a very hard thing to say. But that's Romans 1. So we've moved from no violent group gay sex to no same-sex sexual activity at all to the under-the-hood reason why same-sex sexual relationships are outside of God's design. Now, take, now we're going to take texts 6 and 7, and we're going to pair these together because they're also very similar. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, together with 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. So first, or we're going to read 1 Corinthians first. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, Paul, what do you mean? What, is that, what constitutes unrighteous? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, we're going to come back to that, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. <laughs> but you were washed, weren't you? You were sanctified, weren't you? You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then Timothy. Same kind of a text. Comes in a list. First Timothy says this understanding this that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and the sinners for the unholy and the profane for those who strike their fathers and their mothers for murderers the sexually immoral same word men who practice homosexuality same word enslavers liars perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine so both of these texts are lists you caught that the key for unlocking both of these texts is putting a magnifying glass over those words sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. So first, who's he talking about? Who's in this, 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 this kind of semantic range is what scholars would call it. What does that mean? The first word sexually immoral is from the Greek word porneo. Porneo. Sounds like pornography. Okay. This is a general catch-all term for any sexual activity outside the bounds of a covenant marriage. It's the same word in both texts. Anything sexual that is not given over to your spouse if you're married. If that's you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says. Oh, whoa. Them's fighting words. Second phrase, men who practice homosexuality, is a compound word that basically means men who sleep with other males. It's derived from the Hebrew words way back from Leviticus 18 and 20. Here, Paul is using it as an all-inclusive term to mean male-dominating men, a Roman practice called pederasty, to show dominance over another male. boys, which is also very prevalent in Paul's culture, still today, by the way, who sell themselves to other men. And then even consensual, monogamous, same-sex couples. This is a broad term. Well, what are they doing? The context, both for 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, has two very important specifics in view. First, this is someone who does this, okay? The ESV helpfully includes the word those who practice, it's focused on activity. But then also, the verb tenses in the context show us that this isn't just somebody who did this once, this is a perpetual, unrepentant action. So this isn't attraction, this isn't even temptation, this is action. This is someone going, I feel this, I'm acting on it, and I'm continuing in this way. And Paul goes, no. So what's he saying? Let's put this plainly. Anyone who says, I recognize that this is a sin, which by the way, includes a lot more than just the thing you're thinking of. Anyone who says, this is a sin, I recognize it's against God's law, I don't care though, I'm not going to accept that as the authority over my life. I'm going to continue in my own way. I don't care what God says. If you can say that, either by your words or your actions, according to verse 9, that's an indication that you're probably not saved, which is a really strong word. But that's what Paul's getting at here. That's how seriously God takes perpetual sin. And just for fun, just for fun, let's look at the other eight. Just to put this into perspective, for those of you that still may be prone to guns right now, okay? Sexually immoral, let's start there. Just put this one out there. I recognize that porn is against God's law. I don't care, I'm gonna keep after it. That's a hard heart. That's a dangerous place to be. Here's the thing though, I meet with people all the time as a pastor who are wrestling with a pornography addiction and you know what they say? They say, I know this is wrong, and I hate myself for it. I wish I could quit, and I know I need help. What's under there, though? That's a soft heart. That's someone who is desperate to align their life with God's design for their life. Does their struggle mean they're not saved? No. Their struggle is actually an indication that they are. (laughs) Let's try another one. Adulterers, because that's in that list. And, let's not forget, according to Jesus, if you've ever looked at another person lustfully, you're an adulterer. If you're going to take the ethic of Christ, anybody want to raise a hand? No? Paul's saying, if you've ever looked at somebody lustfully, you're not going to heaven. Is that what he's saying? Of course not. What he's saying is, if you get to a point where you go, I know that lust is not what God wants for me, but I don't care, I'm going to keep doing it. If that's you, you're in a dangerous place, and you need to repent. One more, again, just for fun. How about reviler? We don't say that word a lot. Here's what it means. Hatefully injuring another person's reputation by denigrating them when they're not around so you can control how others see them. If that's you, you're out. Anybody want to talk about that one? No? If you've done that, sorry, since we've all done that, Does that mean you're not saved? No. But if you go, I know it's wrong, I don't care, I like the power this gives me. If that's you, you're probably not saved. But if you find yourself going, I'm such a manipulative person, I need to control how others see other people, I don't want to be, I need help. Okay, let's dance. That's a soft heart. Here's the point. Sin is serious, and if with any of those nine and a good many more, I find myself thumbing my nose at God and just going, yeah, whatever. That's not a soft heart that is seeking him. That's a problem. Specifically, as it relates to same-sex sexuality, here's what Paul is saying. Anyone who continues in unrepentant sexual sin, which is anything from lust to same-sex sexual behavior, is in a dangerous frame of mind and needs to consider their spiritual state before God. This is Paul's wake-up call to remember the goodness and beauty and power of the gospel. And that's why he says in verse 11, and that's what some of you were. Now, why does he say that? They used to be indifferent to God's law. But praise God, because of the cross of Christ, they've seen the gravity of their sin. They've acknowledged their need for a Savior. They've taken Christ as their own. And now everything is hidden in Him. They are now three things. Washed made clean, sanctified, called holy, justified, legally declared righteous in God's sight because that's what Jesus does for guilty sinners like me. Praise God that we're no longer defined by our struggle but by his victory. We're not defined by our darkness but by his light. We're not defined by what our past says about us but by what Jesus says about us. That's grace, that's the gospel and it's needed. In his book, I had to throw a quote in here just to speed bump. Slow down. Washed and waiting, Wesley Hill says this. This is a great quote. One of the most striking things about the New Testament teaching on homosexuality is is that right on the heels of the passages that condemn homosexual activity, there are, without exception, resounding affirmation of God's extravagant mercy and redemption. God condemns homosexual behavior and then amazingly, at great cost to himself, lavishes his love on homosexual persons. But what do we do? And here's where I do get a little cagey. Jesus looked at us that way. Jesus wants us to remember the gospel. But I know a whole lot of Christians who are more focused on reminding their fellow sinners of their failure. And I mean Christians who really like to pronounce judgment more than announce freedom. And if we were writing this text, it would go like this. Sexually immoral, adulterers, adulterers yeah, homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkard. And don't you forget it. You get out of here. You are not worthy. You are gross. You get away from me, and you probably should stay away from my kids. I am so glad that God doesn't treat me that way. Aren't you? And Paul, because he loves the gospel and because he glories in the cross and because he isn't content to let shame get the last word, Paul links arms with his fellow believers, fellow sinners, <laughs> who are drinking in the grace of Christ. And he says to them, like any good pastor should say, if he loves his people, and such were some of you. Yes, remember who you were. But don't forget who you are. You've been washed, sanctified, justified. Sin has far-reaching consequences, but praise God, so does the cross. The good news of the gospel is that because of Christ, my sin doesn't define me. Jesus does. That's the crux of 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. Sin is never what God wants for you, but it is never a limit to what God can do in you. So in summary, I'm going to borrow a phrase from Bruce Miller because he says it more succinctly than I could. Same-sex behavior is never portrayed positively and is condemned in Levitical law And in Romans 1, it's echoed in the list of 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. Sex is reserved for marriage, and marriage is reserved for one man, one woman for life. There is no biblical warrant for same sex marriage. And just so you know, that's the same thing we've been saying every week. This is exactly where we are as a church, because that's what God gives us. And I know some of you are like, good, like that's what I came for. That's all I need to hear. But for me, honestly, there's still a more pressing question. Because I love people who are gay. And I think you probably do too. And I want for for them the same thing I want for anyone else. I want them to have a a flourishing life in Christ and eternity with Christ. And so we still have to answer the question, can someone be gay and be a Christian? And in order to answer that, if we're going to be biblical, I think we need a more robust understanding of sexuality than what many of us have been taught. So I'm going to take about five minutes and I want to run through this together. Saying I'm gay can mean a lot of things. If somebody were to say that to you, that could mean a lot of things. And most of us, because we've been taught a narrative, we run to the absolute worst-case scenario. And so I want to just hit the brakes for a minute. I'm going to walk through six things that when somebody says, I'm gay, this is what this can mean. The first thing can mean roles, roles. I remember when I was a freshman at Hoover High School in the weight room, Track practice after school. I don't think this will surprise you. Uh, I do not sport, essentially, very well. Um, I write poetry. I play music. (sighs) And I remember sitting in the weight room in the freshman after school, track practice, and I remember the guy's name, I remember his face, I remember where he was sitting when he said it. He said, oh, look at the F over there. And it was a pejorative term, and he pointed it at me, and it's a word that isn't said anymore. But I remember thinking at that, at that point, I'm like, oh, wait, what? Like, I'm 14 or 13 or whatever, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I experienced heterosexual attraction. Like, this has been settled at, at this point in my life, I know. But look at that F over there, pointing at me. And I remember thinking, okay, so maybe I don't fit like the John Wayne smoking a cigar, riding a Harley down the road. I think we need to understand something, that it's God's Right to defend and to determine and to define what masculinity and femininity look like. It's not our culture. Our culture does not get the right to define what men and women are for. God does. If you want more about that, we talked about it on First Peter a couple of months ago. But this idea that the church actually should be the ones pointing back to God's word and upholding what biblical masculinity and femininity look like. It's okay to be a more feminine man or a more masculine woman. This isn't a sin. Seriously. It can mean roles. Something else I'm gay could mean is attraction. Now, this is somebody who goes, you know, I, I have experienced this. Somebody who says, I, I, I experience attraction, sexual attraction to members of the same sex, not heterosexual attraction. Now, the question we've got to ask is, well, was that a sin? According to James, No. James says, you sin when you are dragged away by your desires. It isn't the desire itself that constitutes a sin. How about orientation? Now, this is somebody who who says, you know, I've experienced this so long, I feel like this is just the way things are going to go. Like, the compass points north, and I just point toward members of my same sex. Like, this is just the way that things are going. (laughs) Orientation. Consistent attraction over time. It can mean that. And if you look at that, and you're going to go, okay, well, biblically, is that a sin? I don't think based on anything we've said today, you can make that case. How about identity? Now, this is somebody who says, I am this. Now, this may be a little bit of a gray area, and we're going to hang out here for a minute. This is talking about definitions of people. Okay, so just track with me. You know I tend to be a little cerebral around this stuff, so just follow me. The purest description of my sexuality if I had to be open and honest with you is I'm not purely a heterosexual. Don't freak out. I'm not purely homosexual, pansexual, bisexual. I am purely mandysexual. She loves it when I say that. She does not love it when I say that. Here's what that means, is when I became a Christian, I submitted myself to the authority of Jesus. My finances, everything in my life, I try to go, here, Jesus, you take it all. You're the Lord of my life. You get to tell me what to do. And then when he called Mandy and I into marriage, it's a very important word. When he called us into marriage... That shared ownership of my sexuality transferred to also not just be Jesus over my sexuality, but also Mandy over my sexuality. That's what Paul means when he tells the Corinthians that the husband doesn't have a right over his body, his wife does. And wife doesn't have a right over her body, her husband does. Identity. So my purest definition of who I am is not even one of those words. You could say I'm Christosexual or I'm Mandy sexual because nobody says that kind of stuff because we don't overthink it. I tend to, you don't have to. But when somebody says I am a gay Christian, usually what they're talking about is their consistent experience over time. It's interesting that Christian is the noun and gay is the adjective. But this is a gray area and this is a tough one, I know that. How about these last two, lusts? Scripture's pretty clear. Lust of any kind. It doesn't matter if it's heterosexual or homosexual lust. Like, we can't get there. Based on scripture, God says no. I can't lust. This is this inner, unseen thing in me. And God says, no. You cannot cultivate lusts. Which incidentally, I actually have people ask me this, and maybe you've ever wondered this: like, can my wife and I watch porn if we both agree? And the answer is no. Because that's cultivating lust in you for someone not your spouse. You can't, no, you can't go there. How about behavior? This is the last one. This is someone that would say, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm active in this. And again, we'd have to go back to God's word and say no, God's word prohibits that. Now what do we do with all this practically? Because some of you I know you just went like, you just complicated the obvious, dude. I don't think I did. To me this is actually really helpful. Practically, when someone you love has the courage to tell you, I'm gay, the next thing out of your mouth is not, I'm sorry to hear that. It isn't, oh gosh, how could this have happened? And it definitely isn't, get out of my church. Better not be. When someone you love has the courage to tell you, I'm gay, the next thing that comes out of your mouth can be something like, thank you for trusting me with that, tell me what you mean. Why? Conversation cultivates trust. Isolation cultivates bitterness. I want to close by inviting you closer to my heart as a pastor. So if you're here today and you're watching online and you experience same-sex attraction, and maybe you've been told that you're worthless, directly or indirectly, and maybe you're going, I wish I could change myself. I wish I didn't feel this stuff. It's not very convenient for me. Or maybe you're going, gosh, I wish I could change my past. If you're ready to follow Jesus, if you are ready to take him up at his invitation to die daily, which extends to all disciples of his, by the way, and I know that that is so hard, and so please know I don't make that invitation lightly or flippantly. If you want for you what he wants for you, and you want to get it on this, not my will, Lord, but yours, please hear me. There is a seat at the table. If you're listening online or you're here and you go, well, that isn't me, but it is somebody that I know, and it's somebody that I love, and I wish I could change them, you have two responsibilities. First, responsibility number one is you got to check your heart. Where is your life, your sexuality, out of line with Jesus? John 8, you can't hold on to Jesus while you're also holding stones. Second, you have a responsibility for a conversation. You can announce the good news of freedom that's available in Christ to anybody who's going to follow him. So here's where we're going to go and how we're going to conclude today. Um, We're going to listen to some music kind of underneath. Normally we have a song. I know we went long today. We knew we were going to. So we're going to have some soft music, and I just want to give us a minute for prayer. When Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest that's an invitation. It's Matthew 11. And he says, come on, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is him saying, I've got room for you. I'm going to take a few moments in quiet and then I'm going to pray us out. And so if you're here and you go, God, this is so hard. I just want to create a space where you want to talk to him. If you go, God, I need to put my stones down. I'm I'm naturally judgmental, and I want to put them down. I just want to encourage you. You can sit here, and you can do this. I think sometimes the physical is a catalyst for the spiritual. You can open your hands and go, okay, Lord, just take this from me. I don't want to be judgmental anymore. Let's take a few moments in quiet, and then I'm going to pray us out. Lord, you are holy. You are gracious. You are truth and you are mercy. Let us be people who love the gospel. You have been so gracious and so merciful to us, Lord, and so we just say a profound thank you for what you've done. Would you work in these days, Lord? Strengthen your church to be a light in a dark place, and to be loved in a world full of hate. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review,